On this episode of Trading Camp, we interview Money Mander. He talks about adjusting to unexpected market conditions, the importance of separating your trading from your investing, and shares thoughts on the second half of 2023. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Scooter, the next generation of trading tools that will replace everything you know about trading. Built by engineers for the retail trader, Rocket Scooter's revolutionary algorithm is the first of its kind. It uncovers institutional positions and reveals market maker risk and hedging in real time using their AI scanner and algorithmic charting. Rocket Scooter has invented 15 unique indicators that predict high volume before it happens, allowing you to visualize price levels where big money is most interested. There is nothing like it. To see how Rocket Scooter is changing the game for retail traders, check out their three-month pro trial. Right now, they are offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and get started using Rocket Scooter today. Trading Camp has partnered with Elite Trader Funding, a proprietary trading firm focused on giving traders the opportunity to profit from the markets without risking their own capital. ETF offers a range of evaluations which tests your abilities as a trader. When you pass, you'll be able to choose from funded accounts ranging from $10,000 to $300,000. The only risk is a monthly flat fee. The ETF community provides an excellent learning environment and networking opportunities for those serious about taking their game to the next level. We are excited to offer our listeners 30% off of any trading evaluation on ETF's site except for Fast Track. Use the link in the show notes to start your journey as a funded trader today. This episode is brought to you by Kane Capital, a trading community over 25,000 strong featuring live trading alerts and educational content. Link in the notes to join for free today. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheel of dealing, limousine right, jet flying, and I'm having a hard time. Oh, 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 oh. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to TCP Trading Camp Pod, episode 81, about to get underway. We've got a familiar face on this episode. It's Money Mander, Sal, a great friend of the show. Obviously, he works with us in Kane Cap. Very excited to catch up. But before we do that, Noah, what's going on, brother? Alejandro, what's good? Um, always excited to get Sal on the pod, a fan favorite. And um, his last episode, I believe, was in January. He created some fireworks, and so I'm excited to get him back on um, and discuss how, how things have changed. The, the market has been vastly different over the last, I guess, six months since he's come on. And um, we've got a lot to cover. So excited to get into it. We do have a lot to cover. Sal, welcome to the show, brother. How you doing? What is going on? It's a pleasure to be back. I think I was on here on January. So vastly different market that we're trading right now. It'd be fun to talk about. Vastly different in the sense that it's now up hundreds and hundreds of points is what you would be referring to. That's what what some would say. (laughs) All right. So let's start by talking about January, what things looked like in January, what your kind of thesis was, what your thinking was. Let's just start there. From a macro standpoint, from an S&P 500 
strictly price action technicals based standpoint, what was your idea of how the first half of 2023 would go? Yeah, so coming into the year, we really got that October bounce, which is now really stuck as the bottom. It came right off that 50% retracement from COVID lows to all-time highs. So at the time, I was really pricing in. We had the meme stocks and the high betas really leading the charge out of there. And then some of the oversold semiconductors coming into the year. Um, NVIDIA, for example, got absolutely beaten up last year. So we had some of those really oversold names leading the charge. But then at the same time, we had Apple rolling over into new lows at the start of January. We had Tesla rolling over to new lows at the start of January. So a lot of the players at the very top of the, the market cap space to me were still setting new lows. I was kind of looking at it as bear market rally at the time. We had, you know, macros at the time were still seeming to be worse and worse and worse every single month. We had the bond market pricing in worse and worse and worse every month. The 210 inversion that we spoke of the last time I was on here was at like decade lows. Um, so I was really pricing in a lot of these names just in bear market rallies at the start of the year, looking for good opportunities to get my next short going really back in January. That, that was my thesis was play long as long as we can, but I'm looking for my next levels to then get short. Okay. And I, I want to bring Noah in here. Noah, what were your thoughts at the beginning of the year around the same time uh, that we did the episode with Mander? We'll, we'll, all just kind of go back to January here. Yeah, I mean, I think that he did a good job of, of summing up, you know, where the market was. We had had that nasty spill into October and, and we were getting the bounce and things were starting to look better. But when you looked out in terms of like a macro standpoint, it seemed like things were beginning to deteriorate, although um, inflation was already on its way down at that point, early January. And we actually talked about in that episode how you would have a situation where you come into this year and the comparables from last year when inflation was so elevated would make particularly headline inflation look pretty low on a year over year basis because you had such an explosion in inflation last year that you know you're you're comparing this year's inflation against the elevated numbers from last year right which would theoretically bring them bring them down right and so that's sort of was was what was expected and then i think um you looked out into earnings season you had basically um, estimates that profits would fall in both Q1 and Q2. Q1, obviously, we've already had those earnings and that um, held true. And we're actually on the cusp of Q2 earnings as we record this um, episode with the banks coming, you know, two days from now. So we'll have to see um, what the Q2 earnings look like. But just at the time, I remember thinking to myself, look, you know, things do look nice to the upside and some things are definitely have some momentum, uh, particularly to start the year. You remember tech was really leading and really has led for the for the whole first half. But um, I was in a similar mindset where it was like, look, trade the chart um, as long as it looks bullish, but you know, don't fall in love with the idea that you know this rally is going to last forever and be prepared um, and actually look for and seek out those short opportunities so you can catch that next leg to the downside. That's what my framework, my mindset was coming into this year. Okay, so early in the year, uh, as you guys discussed, the macro environment looked wildly different than it does uh, right now. Along the line somewhere, things began to change. Over the past six months, uh, obviously, we've shifted from uh, a bear market into a now bull market. What along the way did you see and recognize that started to make you think, okay, Things may be changing. This may be a little bit more than just a bear market rally. And I remember asking you in January, what would be some of the signs that would let you know that, okay, your thesis that the market is going to trade lower in the first half of the year 
or through the year 2023 could be off. What were some of the things that you started to notice were changing and were actually favorable for the market, if any? Yeah, when we came into the start of the year, um, going to the, the Fed, they give their projections quarterly. And so coming into that January, we had the Fed still like 100 basis points away from their target rate. They were projecting like 1% increases in unemployment. They were really, they hadn't used the word yet, but they were forecasting inducing a recession. That was really, I think, their target. And so while we had this rally coming off of the lows because of inflation rolling over, as Noah just talked about, they were really forecasting that inflation is going to come down, but we might get into disinflation. And because of the elevated rates, they were trying to induce a slight recession, I think, without using the actual word. And so then once we kind of hit like March, at it might have been the, the end of Q1 meeting, Jerome Powell came out and a lot of the Fed chairs were speaking and saying the labor market's been so resilient, we might have you know, like a, a secular change here, like a structural shift in the labor market in that we've elevated rates 500 basis points. But coming out of this COVID pandemic and the lockdown, a lot of places are still so tight for work. And because so many people retired early and exited the labor force, even people that are going back to work that hadn't before, they're now just re-entering the workforce. And that doesn't really count as unemployment because they weren't unemployed before. You know what I mean? When you retire, you take yourself out of the labor force and so there were still a vast amount of jobs. Companies were still looking to hire because so many people had left the workforce. And so really, as we started to turn and I heard them start mentioning that, that's really what's going to keep this labor market so tight. It was the amount and the abundance of jobs that were still open, even as we were kind of turning this point. So some people are coming back to work, but it's it's not like you're seeing unemployment uptick to 4%, to 4.5% like they were projecting. And that's what really would have induced recession. It would have been people looking for jobs that can't find them. But as long as people are re-entering the workforce and able to grab jobs, the labor market stayed historically tight. Even 500 basis points later, we were still at all-time lows in, in unemployment rate. And so once I started to see that shift, and a lot of these names got those pullbacks in the start of March, we had that banking crash. Um, that was another thing. We saw you know billions of dollars of banks go under more so than we even saw in 08 in terms of assets under management. And we sold off for one day and the S&P bounced back the very next day while you had all of these tech names leading the charge here. That's really when it started to look to me, like as we started to break out of these bull flies of the names that pulled back, economic data stayed you know, strong. It really never got into this point where the Fed was projecting it to go to. And so that's when I started looking probably at the end of Q1, I'm like, okay, you know, you're, you're killing yourself trying to play short here and look for these shorts. You got lucky on a couple of pullbacks, but it's definitely time to start rolling the clocks here and start playing long. And it's really been long ever since. Yeah. I want to talk about the last part of uh, what you just said, because I think it's the most important part and the major discussion that I want us to have on today's episode. So there's a very big difference between forecasting and trading. And you're a trader. And everybody likes to forecast or make their predictions. But when it comes down to actually trading, it's completely irrelevant. And people trying to forecast are the people that normally get burnt. The reason is you can't shake your bias. You enter positions. You come up with ways to convince yourself that you're going to be right. You're going to be right. You're going to be right. And as we saw this, you know, what has been a, a really strong start to the year for a lot of people, and as you discussed, it's been unexpected. Anybody who is a trader who hasn't been able to shift their mindset, shift their bias, understand what is going on, they've been struggling. And I want to commend you. So you obviously came on in January. You talked about your thesis. You had your forecast. 
you were able to recognize, okay, things are shifting. I'm wrong in maybe my project my projections, but you didn't let that get in the way of your trading. Uh, the Tesla trade that you took earlier in the year was absolutely nuts. I think that was like May to June where Tesla rally. It, it, you can talk about that for uh, a couple of minutes because I forget um, exactly what it was. But that was just one example of a trade that you were taking where you were looking long. Like, I think that, you know, you went out on a limb, you gave your your thesis, and that's that's very bold to do, obviously, in the market. It's extremely, extremely difficult to forecast. But uh, being able to pivot is very, very important for any trader. And I think that that's why you still managed to have a really successful year, despite things completely changing. And in the first couple months, things just weren't going as you had seen planned. Yeah, I think that should really be the takeaway from this whole episode is that I came into the year probably with the crown of perma bear, especially after writing that paper that we discussed the last time I was on here. And all that really was, was me going back historically and saying in 2000, in 08, if we get a similar scenario that the Fed's kind of projecting with the recession inducing, where could the bottom potentially be? And so that was really what the whole paper was about. It was just going back and seeing in terms of economic data, in terms of the S&P 500 versus GDP, as many metrics as I could pull, where had we bottomed before? But if you get stuck in that sentiment, the thing is the, the recession never induced, right? And so if you got stuck in that sentiment trying to short tops the entire way, you're so underwater. And so, you know, in hindsight, I missed out on a lot of good buying opportunities for longs in common shares to sit on, but that's okay. I mean, I didn't let myself lose money trying to short the top, short the top, short the top. You can't fight price action no matter how strong you think your sentiment is. Like if you're wrong, you just have to ultimately accept that you're wrong because the opportunity cost of continually being wrong is what's more expensive than cutting your losses. And then just, you know, understanding I had my forecast. I thought we were going to see lower, but we're not. And so I'm going to ship sentiment and start playing long. And so it's really been it's been a full quarter, really, of just a lot of calls. And we're getting into that type of the market right now where I think it's a lot of fun that we're kind of past that FOMO bid where I think a lot of people are fully accepting that we're turning the corner into this new bull market. And so now we're getting into that opportunity where you can really start swinging positions. Like the, the problem with downside trading is that you can make a lot really quickly. And I think that's why there's so many bears that love it is that if you're in puts and we see one of those sell-offs, you make a lot of money really quickly, but the markets are so volatile, it's really not great trading. And so another thing I discussed when I came on here last was the one thing I really wanted to start doing was swinging positions again and get out of the zero DTE kind of casino of SPX and NDX and, you know, SPY, QQQ, all that stuff. Because to me, that wasn't really trading. It's like you're trying to capitalize on 30 minute moves. But to me, I think it's a lot more rewarding, like that Tesla trade, for instance, in recognizing daily positions, and especially now as we just see breakout after breakout in a less volatile market, you can sit on calls for you know a full month and just let them continually rip. Absolutely. I like how you talked about the opportunity cost. I think that's very, very important. So um, it, it's, it's a little different than last year. So in 2022, I thought what was interesting is the market was obviously selling off and there were a lot of people making money to the downside. Uh, but if you weren't shorting, right, there wasn't necessarily that opportunity cost because as we know, markets go higher over time. And so it was a little bit different uh, for people who are perma bulls. Obviously, there were a lot of people who lost money. But as you mentioned, coming into the end of last year, there were incredible buying opportunities. I mean, NVIDIA, 
uh, Tesla, Meta, names that have just, you know, obviously up well over 100% now from their lows. Uh, whereas this year, if you came in with the bias of, okay, I'm going to short this thing until it starts to go down, you're now six to eight months behind everybody else who saw last year's sell-off as a buying opportunity. And that's the type of opportunity cost that you have to mess around with if you are a perma bear, as you said earlier. And so from a trader or investor perspective, it is super, super important to be following price and to really just have a game plan, like understand what what it is that you're trying to do. You, you can't be the guy that shorts the top and also the guy that longs the very bottom. It's not going to happen. And I think a lot of people realize that last year and then coming into this year where a lot of people made a lot of money last year shorting the bear market rallies. As you mentioned, when we flush, I'm thinking about Jackson Hole, right? What do we sell off? Like 150 points like intraday? Intraday, yeah. People got like hooked onto that type of move. Like that is insane money. We were getting CPI prints that were sending the market down like 60 points in a literal flash. That type of trading can obviously be very enticing but over the long term, zooming out, I think it's very important to understand markets over time go up. Whether or not the market continues to rally here into the end of the year, there's already been that massive opportunity cost of you know some of people's favorite names, those mega cap tech stocks, have likely uh, put in their lows for a very, very long time at least. And so very different than when you're missing stuff uh, to the short side. You hit the nail on the head. There really is no opportunity cost of missing short because like you said, it's not like stocks are going to continually go down forever. So it's not like, oh, I missed the short on Apple at 150. It's at 120. Like it's not going to go to zero. You know what I mean? There is minimal opportunity cost besides that near term intraday action like we were talking about. It's more so options traders, options traders, and I guess future traders, those leverage trades where you can make a lot of money really quickly in volatile markets like that. That's really all you have going for you in bear markets. But now turning the corner here, like your opportunity cost of having been short, one, if you're you're definitely down if you had been short, but then two, the opportunity cost of not just dollar cost averaging in. That's really my my position here is having that forecast of thinking we we're going to see lower. I now missed great buying opportunities in common shares for the long haul, right? And so my trading year to date, obviously in a trade portfolio is, is well, I didn't turn around and I haven't been trying to short and getting smoked like a lot of people seem to think I am, but it's more so now you know, at the age we're at, I probably just missed decade long lows to have purchased at, or at least have been dollar cost averaging as we started to get below 4,000 or wherever. And a lot of these names, I mean, I look at hindsight's always 2020, but I look at NVIDIA, I look at Meta, I look at Tesla, they were literally on 75% off sales. That's honestly where I wanted to steer the conversation as well, because I know that for me personally, the real lesson learned, I would say like early this year is just really trying to separate that basket of investor and trader. And what I learned about myself is that I'm not great at doing that. And so I personally decided to just not even deal with the investment side. I would much rather have help on that side. Whereas on the trader side, I've been doing this for long enough where I know that if I stick to what I know I can do and what I know works and not try and conflate the two, not try and conflate my ideas about um, you know the larger macro landscape and where I think price in the s p five hundred is going to go over a two, three, you know half a day period. 
that's really where for me, I can find an edge in the market. I can have the best of both worlds. Like Sal said, I can have dollar cost averaging to names that I really do care about and names that I know are going to be good for the long term and the market in general, which I am, you know, have a strong opinion would be good for the long term. I can put that in a completely other basket and have help from people who are literally paid to do this, people who spend their lives, dedicate their lives to um, investing and financial planning and money management. I can have that on one hand. And then on the other hand, I can have whatever it is that I feel about the S&P 500 this week, given what we have on the economic calendar, given the technicals in the chart. And I can also play that, right? And I think, you know, if you're somebody who maybe, if you're somebody who has struggled with that in the past, I would highly recommend looking into really not trying to do both, right? Picking one and whichever one brings you um, more enjoyment or whichever one you're better at, stick to that one and then outsource the other one. Literally, like I, I outsource a good chunk of my long-term investing, you know, early this year, once I decided that, you know what, doing both is just going to give me a headache and it's honestly going to affect my trading negatively. I would much rather, um, look at that less if I could and have that have less of an impact on what I do on a day-to-day basis, right? Like our job is to come in and find alpha in the market, whether that's up, down, sideways, right? An investor's job or a, or a financial planner's job or a, or a um, money manager's job is over the long term to make sure that you're at or beating the market, which obviously is easier said than done. But, um, you know, that that's just sort of one of the the bigger lessons that I've learned so far in, in H1 of, of 2023 is that personally, I'm just not great at doing both at the same time, particularly in markets that are as volatile as they were um, late last year, early this year, right? And I think that has served me well, you know, particularly through the second quarter as I've been able to focus on my trading and sort of take a step back from, you know, trying to trying to do everything at once, right? And it's really about isolating that one thing that you love. And I know that everybody, the, the three of us on this podcast really are super passionate about trading. And so it was really like a pretty easy decision for me, right? When I had to choose between one or two, once you give yourself that choice, it made the decision pretty easy. Let me take a step back from trying to be both Warren Buffett and trying to be Diamond Trades, who's you know looking at much much smaller time frames and trying to capture market moves in a much different way. This episode is brought to you by Elite Trader Funding. ETF is a prop trading firm. For those of you who are unaware of what a prop trading firm is, they basically provide you with capital to trade with and your only risk is the monthly subscription fee. How it works is once you pass an evaluation account, you then become eligible for real money payouts. Now, there are a lot of prop firms out there, but ETF's customer support, the products, and the styles of evaluations they offer are unmatched. I traded and passed a 150K evaluation account, and they were always willing to answer any questions I had along the way. I wish that I had been introduced to them when I first started trading. Thinking back to all the money I lost when I was new to the game, getting the chance to trade a large account while only risking a monthly subscription fee makes too much sense. Not to mention, if you're trying to trade a small-sized account, you can develop some pretty bad habits. Trading a funded account lets you really put your skills to the test by trading more realistic size. Head to the link in the show notes to start your journey as a funded trader today. I think there's a little bit of spillover definitely from when you're trading the markets every day and then you're also trying to invest where you feel like you 
always have to be winning, right? And that's not what investing is at all. Uh, And so for me, how I kind of separate the two is I invest in an amount of money that um, the swings, the daily swings, you know, I'm not freaking out about. And uh, towards the end of last year, I was down on several positions that I had added. uh, And it just wasn't a big deal for me just because of the amount of money I was down. But I always like to think about uh, the compounding effect when I think about my investing. And this is what I was talking about when I said there's a spillover where as a trader, I'm like, so I'm a day trader. So the goal is to come into the market and take a piece out of the market and make money every single day. Okay, that's not how investing works like at all. Uh, The compounding effect and how you are able to compound your money over the course of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, we're uh, in our 20s at the moment. That to me is really what I like to think about. So if I'm buying Tesla or I'm buying Apple, right, I'm not so worried about the price. I'm making sure that I'm not worried about the price because the amount of money that I'm investing is not something where, you know, if if Apple is sliced in half, that I'm going to be shitting my pants. I don't have money to pay for something. Right. So I kind of stuff things away in a retirement account in a long term account. And I don't even think about it. Right. I don't even think about it. But that's the hardest part for a trader because you want to get the bottom on Apple or you want to get the bottom on NVIDIA or let's say NVIDIA right now, it's trading at like 430. Sal, why aren't you adding NVIDIA right now? Because you're a trader and because you're like, oh, it's overextended and you look at the chart and like all this, like the, the it's overbought. Like investors don't think like that, right? Like investors invest in companies that they believe in. And so it is difficult to do, but I try to just completely disconnect the two one thing is going on in the investment accounts. Something else is going on in my trader, in my trading. Obviously, easier said than done. I would also point out as a trader, a big part of trading, half of trading or actually executing your trades, I should say, half of actually executing your trades is selling, right? Exactly. You buy and you sell. You buy low, sell high, or you sell high and you buy low. And investing, there really is not a lot of selling going on. Or at least there shouldn't be. Right. I know so many traders who we're actually in these moves in meta, you know, sub 100, in Nvidia, you know, sub 150, things like that and they sold. They sold because as a trader that's what you do. You buy low and then when you get your bounce you take a little bit of risk off and then maybe you leave some runners on, right? Like that's not how you invest for the long term. You buy and you hold and I think that framework as well is another one that's sort of tough to shake when you're, you know, trying to conflate the two is that you you look a lot at your opportunities to get out, right? Like this is where I'm trading into resistance or, you know, I've got a 100% gain. Like it's easy to say, yeah, I wish I had bought some NVIDIA, you know, at 150. It's even harder to say I would have bought NVIDIA at 150 and then held to 450, right? Like that is, that's a, com- a completely different mindset is needed to be successful um, in that long-term realm. And so I think, you know, just for me personally as a trader that separating the two completely um, was sort of necessary, not just for me to excel in my, you know, um, in my investing in my long-term, um, goals, but also in my trading, it's, it's helped my trading massively, you know, separating the two and really not having to worry about it on a day-to-day basis. In that exact same, uh, mindset, we can all share a good laugh at myself because exactly like you just said, I had Tesla calls on January 6th. I remember I, I was saying if this thing crosses back above 110, I was targeting like 103 on the stock for a short-term bottom, right? It ended up being the very low of the year. I think I swung calls from like 110 to 120. 
stocks at 274 right now. So I think as a trader, the tough part for us is, especially as we're trading intraday, you're trying to short the top or you're trying to catch the bottom. And the thing with investing is it just simply doesn't work like that. And so now, as Alejandro exactly mentioned, right, like I saw Tesla at 110. Well, when it was at 150, I was saying, oh, well, now it's it's up, you know, 40 percent. It's overbought. I'm going to wait for a pullback. And that's just realistically not how the game works. So I think it's a, it, it is a tough distinction. Um, but Alejandro made made some great points in that, you know, you're looking at this over a 40 year time horizon. It's, it's funny we have problems with it because it's so much easier than trading. You look at companies you like over a 40 year time horizon. You know, what companies do I think are going to lead the economy over the next 40 years? And it's so simple. And you just buy them. And then if you're red, you, you put more in and you buy more and you dollar cost average. And if you have it over, you know, a decade, two decade, three decade long horizon, you're most likely going to do well. Or you just buy the S&P. Or you, you buy an index fund. Exactly. And they do the work for you. They get rid of the bad companies and they put in more good companies and it goes in, it goes up over time. But yeah, I'll give an example. Uh, Noah mentioned Meta. I had Meta Commons at like $99. My problem, so I sold some at like 120 and then I think like 150 something like that. I don't remember exactly. What's the stock trading at now? Like 300? 307. So my problem was not that I didn't believe that Meta was going to go up over time. Okay. This was a mistake I made and you know I'm, I'm glad I made it. It's definitely changed my mindset, but very applicable to this conversation. I had way too much money in Meta. I had way too much money relative to the rest of my portfolio. And so when Meta was up 20% and I'm up 20% on what was a large position, I'm taking profits. And then when I'm up even more, I'm up 50% on what was a large position, I'm taking even more profits. Whereas if I would have just maintained that balanced portfolio, understood that I'm buying the company to own it, not to trade it, I would be up 200% on the stock right now and would have made even more money than having that large position and trading it. So although it was a winning trade, that's not the purpose of what I was doing. And so any position, um, it has to feel balanced in that long-term portfolio, again, to take the emotions out. I was down a good bit on Tesla. I had Tesla Commons that I added last year at like 170, I think. And the stock fell all the way to like 110 or something. Uh, And I was like perfectly okay with that. I'm like, you know, this isn't a big deal. This isn't going to affect the way I live. And now I'm up like 60% on the position, but I'm still not thinking to myself, oh, I'm up 60%. Like this is, you know, profit taking opportunity. Tesla could come all the way back down, but I'm owning Tesla. I'm buying it to own the stock. I'm not buying it to trade the stock. Um, Yeah, very important lessons that were taught to us uh, last year. Let's talk more about your trading, Mander. How have things looked as of late? You touched on it a little bit. You've been trading options. You've been playing breakouts. I've noticed you've been buying some more time on some of the options that you've been purchasing. How have things been going for you? Yeah, it's going really well. I completely changed up my whole framework really at the start of the year, but especially as of late in that I just started looking at options trading in and of itself completely differently. And so whereas before I was trying to catch intraday moves on the indices on a zero DTE time frame, and I think that's what kind of got me any type of, I guess you would call it clout on Twitter in that when you're right, you're having thousand percent trades. And so while I was having a lot of thousand percent trades on the S&P 500 and on, on QQQ, it wasn't really sustainable. And so I got in this mindset where I got back to my roots and the roots of options trading 
and what it should be. And so now I've been trading futures for that intraday move. So that way I'm trying to stack up consistent profitable days, futures trading, whether we go up, whether we go down. And then I'm using options trading really on intrinsic value to try and catch those bigger moves versus, you know, I'm not going to swing futures for like two weeks straight. It's realistically not possible. But when you have breakouts on a lot of these names that are now setting up, we've had a lot of really good breakouts on daily charts, um, especially on some of these high betas that are now going. I've been saying, I think we're going to have a, a really good high beta summer here. Um, it, it's been totally different in that I'll find a, a name that I like for a breakout. I find a price target I think it's going to go to. And then you just find a strike price at however much time you want to go out. That makes it a profitable trade, you know, in terms of intrinsic value. And so we'll go back to this Tesla trade that I had. It was my trade of the year so far. Um, I was watching Tesla in this in this daily bull flag that it was in because Tesla was really one of the laggers at the start of the year. Tesla was still at, I want to say like $190 going into the middle of May when the NASDAQ already took out year-to-date highs. Tesla, actually the NASDAQ took out last August highs, thanks to NVIDIA, thanks to Apple. Tesla hadn't even taken out year-to-date highs at 220 And so I was looking at this in a really great bull flag setup. And I said, this thing's going to take out year-to-date highs as a lagger to the NASDAQ. And so all I did, I think the stock was trading like 195 I went out probably six weeks and I bought the 220 calls. I think they were at like $2. And so the way in my mind it was working is that I gave myself six weeks for it to set new year to date highs, which would have been right at 220. And I basically had a break even price of 222, right? If it hit 225, I'm now up 100% on the position. Anything above that is now extra. And so the stock ended up breaking out of the bull flag and running all the way to like 250 while I was in it. Now at 275 here about a month later. Um, but that's to me how options trading should be done. At least that's how I've changed my mindset to think that's how it should be done. When you're right, you should be paid extremely for being right because you're playing the most volatile market really out there, right? Options at their core are zero or hero. And so instead of trying to take them and scalp them for 20% or 50%, that's a losing game in my opinion. The zero DTE trading is a seller's game in my opinion, because you're, you're battling Greeks on top of Delta instead of just trading futures. Whereas if you go out and try and capture bigger moves, that's where you're going to be really, really paid when you're right. It's funny because when we sort of shifted from trading options to trading futures, I'm talking about um, me and Alejandro, I think one of the main things that we talked about was the analysis more or less is accurate. And there are times that you're losing on trades, even when your analysis is correct. And for me, like that just mentally, that just bothered me so much. And it's funny because we're, we're getting into a similar part of the market now where it's almost like FOMO driven, right? Where you see everything going up, right? Particularly in high beta land, which I know that you've been all over over the past, like, you know, a couple of months, you're seeing everything going up. And that's really when, you know, when we're in squeeze mode and everything is sort of just ripping or we're um, the inverse of that, like late last year, I think like September, October, when everything is literally selling off. Um, it becomes, it becomes like, wow, I could have made this amount just waking up blindly shorting whatever. Right. And I think, I think it's times like earlier this year, January, February, March, when things are a bit more, um, unclear that you really have to stay extremely regimented and, and, and develop the good habits that are going to carry you throughout your trading career. I think that Times like we're in right now where everything is just going up or times like we were in last year where everything is going down can create really bad habits for you over the long term because that's not going to be every market condition, right? If you try and approach every market condition like it is that, like you can 
um, apply a broad stroke to everything that's going on in the market, I think ultimately what happens is you wind up realizing that there are nuances that you have to that you have to account for, and that if you're not using a, a well-defined, clearly laid out plan every single time that you're taking a trade, ultimately whatever gains that you make when the market is is going completely vertical or whatever gains you make when the market is going completely down and everything is selling off, you're going to give right back when the market tide changes, right? And I think you have to go through a certain period of making a little bit of money, giving it back, losing some money, making it back, get making some money, losing it back, right? Like that break even stage of trading to really understand, okay, clearly there's something here, right? Clearly I'm not completely lost. I kind of know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm being successful sometimes, but not over a long enough time frame for me to feel sustainable. That is ultimately, I think, where you decide right there, right? That, that right there is where you become, um, you, you develop a system that's ultimately going to carry you throughout your trading career, right? And I think that for me and Alejandro, that looked like, okay, we're just going to switch to futures and, you know, it works better with our, our, our strategies and our styles. And that's completely fine for you. That looked like, okay, I'm just going to do the same thing with options, but I'm going to buy a little bit more time. I'm going to allow myself a, a larger margin of error because I'm not going to 99% of the time, I'm not going to nail the top 99% of the time. I'm not going to nail the bottom, but more than half the time, my analysis on the direction is going to be right. And if I'm right, I need to get paid. And I think that You've done a really, really good job seeing you trade every day over the last six months. You've done a really, really good job of sort of just sticking with it and making those little tweaks and adjustments to your strategy where it's like, you're not completely doing something different. You're more or less doing the same things that you were doing last year. You're just allowing yourself more uh, margin for error, right? You're, you're, you don't have to be as perfect to make money anymore. And I think when the market gets like this, in, in situations where everything is going up, that's still going to benefit you, right? It's, it's not necessarily going to hamper you because you're not in zero DTs. I'm sure that there are plays, DraftKings, great example, right? You bought like seven, eight weeks on the, on those options contracts. Look at it today and it's up 100%. Yeah, if you went a couple of weeks shorter, could you have three, four, 500%? Sure, you could have. But at the same time, I'm sure that when you took that trade, you were a lot more confident that you would get paid if your analysis was right. Whereas if you're taking that shorter to... um shorter to expiration contract, you really do have a smaller margin for error, right? Next day, whatever, NFP comes out, NFP comes in hot, market sells off 2% and DraftKings has a down day. You're getting clapped in those options contracts, even if necessarily your analysis on the stock or, um, or whatever level that you set that says, okay, once this level breaks, I'm wrong. Even though that didn't necessarily happen, you're down 50%. Now what? Right. And I think that you've done a good job of sort of removing that, um, that, um, I don't want to call it like a, it is really that inherent like downside of, of options trading, of options buying in particular. I like that you mentioned that, you know, selling options on a, on a shorter term time frame isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world, but particularly when you're buying, you've sort of removed um, a big piece of why I believe anyways, a lot of newer options traders really struggle. And I think that um, others would be wise to sort of emulate those steps. If you're struggling in the options game, particularly trying to buy options, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you would look out and go a little bit more time. And I know that there's going to be some people listening to this, like, why don't I just trade zero DTEs? Why don't I just trade the nearest expiration? Because over the last month, month and a half, that's what's been working. And I promise you, we've, the three of us have all been in that same boat. So that's, that's, you know, all I would say is that, you know, really, really think about 
And is what is my success right now a product of the market environment or is it a product of a well-defined strategy that has clearly um, written out rules that's going to help me in the long term, right? Making that distinction is going to be really important for how long you're able to stay in this game. That was really all of us for a whole year. And so you're listening to guys that have been in those trenches of trying to chase that volatility and you hit the nail on the head in that the way I'm looking at the stock market and my technical analysis and like the way I'm trying to pinpoint trades has not changed really one bit over the past year. I'm still looking at charts the exact same way I was a year ago, but it was kind of a double-edged sword. And you hit on this in that, you know, trying to chase that weekly volatility. If we have a, a, you know, I get in a trade at 11 and there's a lunchtime pullback, I could be down 40, 50% on weeklies just by the inherent nature of that volatility and then you're just continually getting stopped out if you're running stops or now it's too too late. You know, you bought in too much time value on your premiums. You don't have that upside. But then at the same point now in buying time, one, I'm not going to have that issue of being down significantly on a midday pullback going out a couple of weeks. But also when I'm right, a lot of times I was getting, you know, 100, 200 percent trades on weeklies. But then the stock continues to go the next week and the week after. Right. So when I'm playing these daily breakouts, like, yeah, getting a couple days of a squeeze is great because you get that short term 100, 200 percent. But at the same time, you know, buying time on these then allows me more time for the stock to continue to move. So that's really what also is driving me nuts is, you know, say I had the Amazon 110 calls and whatever, 200%. Well, the next week, if the stock goes to 120, I would have made more buying time. And so I would have had less downside plus hypothetically more and letting them run over the course of a couple of weeks. So I think just given the current market conditions in that, you know, we'll see a couple of days of consolidation or maybe a slight pullback, but ultimately a lot of these names are just continually setting higher highs. And so to me, it makes more sense to be in them for the majority of that move as much as I can capture. A good point too, is that you inherently in the back of your mind know that, okay, I'm up 100, 200% on these options here. If we do happen to get some sort of pullback, let's say that, you know, on this, this day is particularly risk off, um, tech is selling off. I'm in some high beta options. You're going to be more likely to pull the trigger on, on collecting those profits because you know, inherently in the back of your mind that if you do get a deep enough pullback, all those gains are going to be gone. Right. And you know that. And so that makes you a little bit more anxious, right? When you're in the trade and you're already winning, it makes you a little bit more anxious and makes it harder to um, hold those runners like you were talking about. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, you know, it, different strokes for different folks, right? Like for me, it was, it was, you know, completely sort of just stepping away from the option space. And I think that for you, if you, for, for folks who, you know, weren't necessarily going to take it that far, um, the adjustments that you made were particularly, I think, helpful for, for newer options traders in particular. So, Hey, Noah, what do moving averages, RSI, and MACD all have in common? They're all lagging indicators from the 70s with weak ability to predict future price action. Exactly. Modern retail traders need modern trading tools. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Scooter, an artificial intelligence and algorithmic charting tool that predicts where high volume will occur before it happens. That's right. Rocket Scooter's 15 unique indicators help visualize in real time where institutional players are interested on almost any stock and gives you a clear-cut game plan for how to take advantage of the underlying mechanics of the market. A platform like that probably costs a ton of money. Right now, they're offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and getting started using Rocket Scooter today. 
What about the downside, Mander? Has your risk management changed at all, or you're still using similar strategies as before? No, it has. It's changed a lot. And and before, this is what I would do is I would size for, say, a 20% or a 50% stop loss. But what I kept finding was happening is that I would get my stops run in a similar you know sentiment to what I just mentioned earlier. You have a, a midday pullback. I'm getting my stop run for whatever I sized for. And then the play ends up going. And so you kind of get in this mental position where – you know you're right, but then they're running liquidity in the middle of the day. You know, do you average down? Do you buy more and get a better cost basis? But what if you're ultimately wrong? Now you just increased your size and you're going to have a bigger loss. And so really all I started doing was, and I think this is really the beauty of options trading. And this is, in my opinion, how it should be done. Options trading is one of the only avenues in the markets where you have a set defined risk, meaning that there's zero or hero, but I'm only going to lose as much as I buy. And so all I've started to do is try and find positions with 200, 300% upside at intrinsic value if I'm right. So if I think if I think Amazon's going to go to 140, right? And I buy the 135 calls. Well, if I get those at a buck 50 and then they go to five, like when they're at 140, that's now a three R trade. So that's all I've been doing is, you know, I have a defined risk and I'm honest with my defined risk so that I'm not stressed out about it. And I will either let them go to zero. Ultimately, I'm wrong. But then when you're right, you are getting paid a lot more because you're you're finding plays that are three to five or you know ten plus R. This DraftKings trade that Noah mentioned that I'm in right now, I think this has the possibility to squeeze the forty. That would put those at a thousand percent profit, right? And so if I have a thousand percent potential upside on the stock going to forty, there's no reason for me to be running a fifty percent stop loss. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how I've I've altered my mindset on it. And I think. That's really how it should be done because options trading is not you're fight you're you're fighting a losing battle trying to trade options with a twenty percent stop loss. It's just realistically not how how it's going to work. But you have a defined risk, and I think it, it behooves everyone to utilize that. And so you just take the size of position that you're willing to lose, whatever that twenty percent stop loss would have been monetarily. Just use that as your full size position, but then let them run. So you're not scalping for 30%. That's at least my mindset on it, right? I don't I don't want to be scalping options for 30%. I would rather go to ES or go to NQ and take that scalp on a future street. Yeah. And I think that that would give people a lot of peace of mind in general sizing for zero because the options market in itself is wild. And when you can't manage a position from 4 p.m. close until 9.30 a.m. open the next day, there is a lot that can happen in that overnight session. Markets trade 24 hours a day um, in today's world. So you can come in and maybe you sized for a 20% stop loss or a 30% stop loss, even 50%. Maybe you entered the trade at the close and you say, okay, I'm willing to lose half the amount that I put in. The market does not have to respect your stop loss. And then intraday, your stops can get skipped. Right. You don't always get your fill if something crazy happens, it's crazy news can whatever. Again, the options market is inherently nuts. So sizing for zero would give people a lot of peace of mind. And it's very, very difficult to do, I think, because of the fact that let's say your risk is two hundred dollars. Right. 
it's a lot sexier or a lot cooler to put $1,000 into a trade and use a 20% stop and say, if I'm up only 20% on this trade, I'm going to make 200 bucks. But then if you go in with that zero hero and you put $200 into the position, you now think to yourself, damn, I have to get be up 100% just to make $200. And so that alone plays with a lot of people's heads because, again, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem right. Right. It doesn't necessarily make sense because you're betting on the price of your premium to literally double. But I think, again, going back to peace of mind and also understanding that I love how you mentioned you were like, I think this is how options should be traded. I think that way as well. Obviously, I personally don't trade options just because I found I have more success trading futures. But to me, it makes more sense to have confidence in yourself as a trader to where I'm going to enter a trade where I at least see the price of this option contract doubling, right? I need stock uh, XYZ to go from point A to point B. And if that happens, and if I'm confident in my technical analysis, I should have no problem doubling my money. And if it doesn't happen, then I need to be super wrong. I don't need to be wrong by, you know, I enter and the stock sells 50 cents and I get stopped out. I need to be wrong as shit. Like I need my analysis to have been completely off and I need to be okay with that. The in-between stuff of, oh, I was right, but you know, I, I got smoked on a stop loss hunt. That is just terrible, terrible, terrible. It messes with your mental. It's obviously going to affect your P&L. And it's, it's difficult to be right in the first place. So, you know, trying to be right and then, telling yourself, okay, I can only use a 20% stop loss. I have like this tiny amount of room to play with. Definitely a losing game. And trading naked options like that is one of the most difficult things to do, if not the most difficult thing to do in the market. You sucked the words right out of my mouth in that. You got to, um, no, no. Trading options no. Re- is re-say hard. Re-say that. Re-say that. You're not doing that. You're not doing that here. Bro, bro stop saying that. Like, what's bro. wrong with you? Stop, stop. That's twice in a week, dude. You're fried. Unreal. What else? Bro, just say took, bro. Yeah, dude, that's it. Suck the words out of my mouth. That's insane. (laughs) Enough, 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 enough. Yeah, you totally read my mind with that one in that trading options is hard enough in being right. But now when you're running those tight stop losses, I mean, it's the Wild West in terms of Greeks, in terms of volatility of contracts and premiums. So now on top of having to be right, you have to be right now like you have to be right at the correct time to not get your stop run and to me i never found success with it so i'm sure there's people out there that are gonna be listening to this and saying you know that makes no sense having to bank on your trade doubling or else you know you're not you're at a, a negative r when that it makes way more sense for me to run a 20 percent stop loss all i need is a 20 percent upside and i'm already in the green you know what i mean so some people are gonna have that mindset to me it, it was never profitable um at least in in terms of the long run right like you can have trades where the second you you slap the ass you're up but in the long term to me it made a lot more sense to go this route and then you're capitalizing on bigger and bigger winners because you know if you have a 20 percent stop loss you feel obligated to take profit at 25 30 percent because now you're above the risk you put in so you're saying okay if i'm up 40 percent, that's double my stop loss i'd be stupid not to take profit here especially because you're obviously going to be sizing bigger with a 20 percent stop loss in that example right if you risk 200 and you're up 400 you would feel very obligated to take some profit at 40%. But then if you were actually right on the trade, there's a good chance those go 100, 200%, but now you've already taken position out 
and you're not really capturing that full move. So that's how at least how I've wanted to look at it. You know, I, I set the date that I think I buy enough time that I think this move can happen realistically in this amount of time. If it happens sooner, even better, because you're still going to have time value left on that. You're putting yourself at a higher and higher R the faster that move happens. And yeah, sure. Like the DraftKings example, would I be up, you know, double, triple what I'm up right now? You know, had I taken weekly? Sure. But that's right now. You know, we could look back in three weeks and the stock's at $40. I'm going to say, damn, I'm so glad I bought some time and let this thing go. So, Manor, before we get out of here, let's touch on what you're looking at into the second half of the year here. NASDAQ up like 36-ish percent year to date. Um, yes, a little bit under 20%. Federal funds rate sitting at about five and a quarter. Um, inflation, which we just got this morning, headline down at three. Core... What's core at? Like four point something? Fours? What do you see here coming into the second half of the year? I don't need as big of a prediction as you gave us on your first episode of the year, but just what are you looking at um, into the end of the year? How are you feeling about the markets and the the broader macro uh, environment? Yeah, I'll stay away from the price target predictions because um, those seemingly didn't work too well for me the last time. But really what I'm watching here, and we've discussed this, is the Nasdaq's coming off the strongest first half of the year, I believe, ever. If anything, it's going back to like 1983. It was really historic, the the amount of upside we saw in those led by those mega caps in the Nasdaq. So really what I'm looking at, um, one, one statistic I saw is that the ratio of the Nasdaq to the Russell 2000 hit equal levels as it did at the top of the dot-com bubble. And I know a lot of people looked at that and thought, that must mean short tech. That must mean short tech. It's not necessarily what it means. But the way we could see that ratio unravel from the concentration in the NASDAQ versus the broader markets, that's really all the ratio is showing, is you just start to see breadth expand. And so while I'm not necessarily looking for, you know, Tesla to double again like it did, a lot of these names probably caught the bulk share of the upside in the megas that they may see for the rest of the year. That doesn't mean they might not go higher. But when you had names aggressively bouncing off the bottom going 100 you know, 200% in the largest companies in the economy, that's likely not going to happen again. But what I'm expecting to see happen is rotation out of those names and for profit taking to then expand breadth. And so really what I'm looking at for the rest of the year is a lot of the lagging sectors. I like financials. And you just mentioned we have earnings coming this Friday. Um, So XLF and a lot of the, the bigger banks in particular, the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas, the ones that are quite literally too big to be in trouble with the commercial real estate. That seems to be the only negative tail when we have left for banks is the commercial real estate bubble that we seem to be having going on right now. You know, should any of those foreclosures happen, it's going to be in the regional. So I like the big banks and I really like a lot of these high betas that are still destroyed. I mean, you still have a lot of these names, even after the recent squeezes we've been seeing, still 80% off of highs, just because you know, if you had a stock go from 90 to $6, well, if it gets to 12, yeah, it's up 100% off of lows, but it's still at $12 versus $90 that it was at before. And so I think we should, we could really start seeing a lot of these small caps and a lot of these high betas start to short, squeeze shorts out into the rest of the year. So that's really where my attention is going to be. It's, it's not necessarily a short tech, but I think QQQ could be rather stagnant and or a slow grind higher, but I think we're going to see a rather explosive move in the Russell 2000 as we start to see a lot of this breadth expand. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've already started to see that, right? I mean, we've already started to see um, some of the high beta names uh, start to go. We've already started to see the Russell pick up on a year-to-date basis. I think it's lagging um, the other three major indices, the, uh, the S&P, the um, NASDAQ, and the Dow. And so particularly into late June, we, we saw that um, 
rotation, you know, sort of start. And so that's definitely something I'll be paying attention to as well. I like the idea of not necessarily shorting tech, even if you're still in the camp of a recession um, is impending, which it very well may be, it it might not be. Um, We've already sort of seen that these larger mega cap names, your Apples, your Microsofts, um, even Meta, if you want to throw it in there, um, have been able to retain enough uh, demand to sort of warrant them trading at, you know, pretty aggressive multiples, right? Particularly when particularly when you look at last year, right? Or, or even early this year when inflation is running through the roof and, um, you know, theoretically you would assume that people would pull back on spending. I mean, Apple, um, Microsoft, and um, some of those other mega cap names were still reporting like amazing earnings and, you know, um, Amazon is another one that you could throw in there. We're still reporting, you know, really solid, solid earnings, still giving pretty solid forward guidance. Um, and so it doesn't seem like, it seems like that's where people will stop sort of spending last, I think is how people have approached it. Even if we are to have, you know, some sort of recession later this year, it's not necessarily like you're going to see Apple 50% off of highs again, unless you have some sort of black swan event that is a bit unforeseen, right? And so um, that's why they call them black swan events. They're They're very hard to um, see coming if you see it coming and then it's not a black swan event. Um, so I, I, I agree with that sentiment that, you know, even if you are, you know, of the mindset that, you know, tech may slow down and it's obviously going to be hard for Apple to double from all time highs. Um, I don't, you know, that might be clipped in a couple of years when Apple's trading at a thousand dollars a share, who knows? Um, but I, I do like the idea of not necessarily shorting tech, but maybe looking at, um, an expansion of this rally into different parts of the market um, as a safer way to sort of play that idea. So I'm with you there. Yeah. I I think if you're kind of in the boat where you missed the majority of the move that we saw in these megas, there's still great buying opportunity. You know, should we be turning the corner here into a new legitimate bull market where we're going to see multiple years on end of, you know, growth in the economy. A lot of these companies are still trading at a vast discount and not even these meme stocks. Like I have no interest in buying GameStop or AMC or, you know, Carvana, as you guys know, but there's a lot of really good companies that are still beaten up like Block, you know, Square that handles payment processing, owns Cash App. That's one I would like. PayPal, um, the Trade Desk, you know, there's a lot of Shopify, another one. There's still a lot of really good buying opportunity. I think Disney, Disney will... Disney, I don't know. Disney might have to shake out some whatever they got going on right now first. They'll be all right. They'll be all right. There's there's still a lot of really good opportunity out here in the market. So if you take your focus out of those seven names that have really led the way to start, there's still a lot of names here that I think have a lot of upside as we start to see this rotation. And that gets back to buying the the companies that you like, right? Even if, um, even if we find ourselves in a situation where the market trades sideways or even down in the second half of the year, that's the whole point, again, like to, to sort of bring it full circle of, of buying those names that you have confidence in in the long term. If I buy Disney today at 90 bucks and I really love the company, if it drops to 70, I should be prepared to buy more, right? And I think that um, to bring it full circle, that, that's exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of the pod, right? Is if you're looking for long-term buys still, if you have um, missed, if you feel that you have missed the majority of this move, um, I would I would really shift your focus to companies that you really believe in as opposed to stocks that look like they're poised to rip um, 
at least for, you know, your, your long-term investing, you know, your trading is your trading, but you know, for your investing, just the companies that you believe in dollar cost average into those. Um, and like Manager said, there's a lot of opportunities out there. 100% agree with you guys. And the last point I'll make on that is in investing, uh, our edge, you know, in trading, we like to talk about edge. Where can you find your edge in the market? Our edge in investing is really just our time. And so while things, you know, continue to move higher in the market and we feel like we've missed opportunities or maybe some of your favorite names are double off their, their lows and you're scared to buy them or whatnot, Maybe you're down on positions that you bought at the beginning of last year. Again, the edge in investing is that massive time horizon. It's the compound interest. Nobody, you know, Warren Buffett, obviously one of the greatest investors of all time. I read this a couple of days ago. He, uh, I'm not sure what his net worth is currently. I think the book was written uh, during COVID, but he at the time was worth $84 billion. Okay. Warren Buffett has made 82 billion of his 84 billion after the age of 50, which to me, that just blew my mind. My mind couldn't even fathom that. And that's just the power of compound interest. That's the power of investing for nine decades. Um, so just a, a you know, how old is he? He's like 90, right? Okay. 80, 80 something. Yeah. High eighties. So he's been investing for a really, really long time. That really put things into perspective for me on the power of compound interest. It's 92, 92 years old. So his edge again was the fact that he's been investing for 92 years, 82 years old. So he started investing when he was 10 years old. That's his edge. That's how he's been able to outperform and, you know, grow this immense amount of, of wealth. Whereas, you know, most people would look at an investor of his, uh, stature and think, wow, he must be so good at picking stocks. While that's true, uh, that's not really where you know he he amassed this immense amount of wealth. It was just being consistent over such a long period of time. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Appreciate you guys tuning in, Mander. Thanks for joining us, brother. This was good. Really good discussions that we had. Always a pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. All right, awesome, Noah. Another. Wonderful episode. I'll see you next week for episode 82. Yep. Thanks again to Mander. Always um, enjoy having him on the pod and we'll have him on, um, I'm sure, before the year is out at some point. But yep. See you guys next week. Take care. Our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only. It is very important to do your own analysis before making any investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find in our podcast and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise.